Welcome back. It's time for another episode of the Humble Perspectives podcast with Steve Humble. This week I'll be reading about an unexpected and big change that came about in our lives not too long after the division which had taken place in our community and that I read about last week. But before I tell about that change, in the chapter I will be reading this time, I share some of the important things that I was observing and learning concerning the ways of God as well as things I was learning about myself. And now, from my book, For Such a Time as This, Chapter 18, A Big Change. Gradually, I realized that a season had changed. The late 1960s and most of the 70s had been years when the Spirit of God had been awakening people to Jesus and to the gifts of the Spirit and to community. The Jesus Movement, the Charismatic Renewal, and the rise of covenant communities had been God-initiated. In those years, evangelism was relatively easy. Multiplied millions of people around the world who were hungry for God and truth and spiritual life and had came to profess to be born again and, and or filled with the Holy Spirit. Many churches and Christian communities that were open to the work of the Spirit sprang up in the United States as people sought for teaching and mentoring in the ways of God. However, in the late 70s and on into the 80s, many of the churches, communities, and ministries that had been born during this time of awakening began to experience a season of testing. I have no doubt now about the validity of the hard times prophecies that had been given a few years before. It is quite possible that the prophecies saying structures in which we trusted were going to be shaken concerned the as yet future shaking of denominational structures economic structures, and civil governments, as some of us had interpreted them. However, the first thing we should have done was examine the structures that we were trusting in, which for many of us were the leadership teams in the communities with which we identified. Personally, I was as fully committed as I knew how to be to the purposes of God and the truths that He had called us to live to the way he was working in us and through us to conform us to his mind and to his ways. Even so, it has become clear that I had in many ways become enamored with the structures that we were building. I had failed to focus first on the purposes and truths that these structures were meant to manifest. For example, living in a covenant community was a practical, visible way to obey the commandments to love God and to love one another. However, when the structure of our community was shaken, I sometimes found myself fighting more for the survival of the community as an entity than I was fighting for the relationships with my brothers that the community structure was meant to serve. The season of testing revealed flaws in us and in what we had built. I have concluded that this is one of the ways God often works. God calls us and works in us, and then he allows us to do, go through some kind of wilderness like Israel did after their great deliverance out of Egypt. In their wilderness testing, God exposed the unbelief and disobedience that the people of Israel had brought with them out of Egypt. Earlier, God had called Abram, Abram out of Ur and promised him offspring. 
However, Abram went through 35 years of testing and waiting before God opened Sarah's barren elderly womb and gave Abraham and Sarah the promised son, Isaac. After Isaac's birth, God gave Abraham yet another test by commanding him to offer that promised son as a sacrifice to God. From the human standpoint, Abraham could have raised all sorts of objections to this seemingly cruel test. However, this time Abraham's immediate obedience demonstrated clearly that his full trust was in the Lord his God, not in the promise or the son whom God had given to him. God gave 17-year-old Joseph accurate dreams about his future. But Joseph was 30, having been betrayed, enslaved, and imprisoned before his dreams began to be fulfilled. Only later did it become clear that God had sent Joseph ahead of his family in order to save them in the time of famine. The psalmist sang about the way in which the very word of the Lord that Joseph had received in the dreams tested him before it was fulfilled. Psalm 105, 16 and 19 says, When God summoned a famine on the land and broke all the supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Jesus himself, after he'd been baptized in water and the Holy Spirit had come upon him, was driven, as Mark put it, into the wilderness to be tempted or tested. The difference is that Jesus passed the test. There was no flaw in him to be exposed. Thus we too were tested, both as individuals and as a community. Much of the testing was directly related to the words of the Lord that we had heard. Words such as discipleship, community, covenant, kingdom, and spiritual authority. When the test came, what would we do? Would we deal with one another faithfully in covenant love? Or would we revert to our old ways? Would we hold fast to God, to our calling, and to our commitments? Or would we turn to our own ways, sometimes even declaring that God was leading us to do so? Over the years since then, I've observed what seems to be a typical pattern in the way God deals with churches and communities that he has called together. Often, it seems like people come together, sometimes without much human effort, for the first two years or so. Then some sort of test comes and there's a sorting out. Those who remain are the ones who are foundation stones in the group. Then about 10 years or so into the life of the church or community, there's often another season of testing. In this time, I, as I see it, God allows the group to reach, reap some of the mixed seed that has been sown. Because of our fallenness, there's almost always mixture in what we say and do. And what we sow in words and deeds, whether pure or impure, will produce a harvest of like kind in due time. God, because of his mercy, I believe, allows some of the impurities to manifest so they can be dealt with. At that point, one option is to repent of the mixture, hold fast to the truth, endure the testing, and go on as faithfully as possible. Another option is to refuse to repent and futilely try to hold on to everything. Some seem to react in yet another way. They give in to the discouragement and disillusionment and settle for something less than the revelation and calling that they had claimed to have received. Sadly, some even seem to fall away completely. The testing proved to be disillusioning for many of us. 
Someone has said you cannot be disillusioned unless you have first had illusions. It was the grace of God to show us our illusions. As Bob Mumford had taught in the 1979 Covenant Life Conference, it's better to know that we only have an ounce of faith than to go on to face new challenges wrongly thinking that we have a court of faith. When disillusionment comes, the important thing is to press through to a deeper knowledge of God and His ways and not to let it drive us away from the call of God. In the years following the breakup of the Association of Communities and the division in the Servants of the Lord, I heard of community after community and church after church that had been born in the 70s and were going through times of testing and shaking. Some survived. Some did not. The immediate crisis in our own community gradually passed. We began to adjust to the loss of our friends. There were seasons of grief in the loss. It was often awkward and sad when we came into contact with people who had left. However, we who remained went on living our life together as best we could. And I discovered that even with the pain and loss, life in community was still far better than it would have been elsewhere. Although disappointment, seemingly with Jack, but actually with myself, had created a strain on my relationship for him, with him for a time, we had not allowed the problem to grow into a rift between us. However, we did come to the conclusion that it would be better for Bill Rademacher to give me pastoral oversight. It was not until later that I realized that the Lord was using my discomfort with Jack to stir up the nest in a similar way that the mother eagle was said to stir the nest so it becomes uncomfortable and the little eaglets leave the nest and learn to fly. God was preparing me for another major change that I did not foresee. During 1982 and into early 1983 we continued to adjust to the new reality. Because of the split, we had lost at least 15 adult members from the community. Those leaving included four coordinators as well as a number of small group leaders. At the same time, however, we continued to add new members steadily. We also recognized new coordinators and new small group leaders. The Free Church Fellowship began to grow in numbers as the word about our Sunday worship gathering began to spread. Some who came were non-denominational by conviction. Several others came because they struggled between fulfilling their commitment to the servants and the commitment expected of the members by their evangelical churches. And a few came to us after making a decision to leave the Roman Catholic Church. By the spring of 1983, the fellowship had grown to nearly 80 people. Because we shared a serious commitment to ecumenical unity with the rest of our community, the Free Church leaders worked hard to help people coming to us discern whether or not they really should identify with us. This meant examining with them their decisions to leave their former churches. It also meant that we diligently sought to instruct them in our particular way of understanding Scripture. The cultural aspect of life together and servants continued to develop also. Some of the brothers and sisters began a dinner theater that added a dimension of the arts to community life, adding some spice to our life together. The dinner theater provided opportunities for community members to develop and exercise 
a variety of gifts, including organizing, ministrating, cooking, singing, and acting. The dinner theater provided a great place to bring people whom we were seeking to share the good news about Jesus. It was a place where they could experience something of the holistic life in Christ that we had together in community. In the spring of one of those years, some of our gifted artistic people put together the so-called Spring Fling, a first-class variety show consisting of drama and music. The woman who directed it had actually had some theater experience on Broadway and helped the Spring Fling to be an expression of excellence as well as good fun. While community life continued to be rich and full, the winds of change were blowing, though I was unaware of it. In October 1982, the Protestants in the Servants of the Lord held a conference celebrating our heritage. I opened the conference on Friday night, October 8th, with an overview of church history from a Protestant perspective. Truth be told, it was primarily an Anabaptist or Free Church perspective, since that's the tradition with which we in the Free Church Fellowship identify most. On Saturday morning, a Presbyterian pastor and a non-denominational pastor gave presentations on the authority of Scripture. Then in the afternoon, a Lutheran pastor and a Wesleyan pastor spoke on salvation by faith. We entered the conference on Saturday night with a banquet that was prepared and served by a number of our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. During this period, we coordinators began to develop our relationship with the newly formed Fellowship of Communities. In February 1982 and again in February 1983, several of us traveled to Tempe, Arizona to meet with the leaders of communities from South Bend, Indiana, Muncie, Indiana, Tempe, Arizona, Los Angeles, California, Augusta, Georgia, and Corvallis, Oregon. The first year, we dealt mostly with organizational issues. The second year, we brought our wives in order to, to deepen the fellowship and begin to focus on our common approach to theological issues and to cultural challenges we were all facing. A few weeks before the 1983 gathering, I was asked to prepare for that meeting a paper concerning the distinctive beliefs of Protestants. I threw myself into the project for three weeks and finished the paper titled, What is Protestant Orthodoxy? just a day or two before Patricia and I flew to Tempe, along with six other couples. I had no idea the impact that working on that paper would have on me. I tried to give a perspective on the great variety of beliefs represented by Protestants. Near the beginning, I set forth the two main issues that Protestants hold to be different than Roman Catholic teaching. One, the Bible is the highest and final authority given by God. As stated in the Formula of Concord, Scripture is, quote, the only rule and norm according to which all dogmas and all doctors ought to be esteemed and judged. Unquote. Doctors there, of course, as teachers. Number two, people are justified before God by faith alone, sola fide, the Reformers proclaimed. In his book, The Protestant Faith, George W. Farrell identified five key emphases in Protestant teaching. Grace and the sovereignty of God, faith, scripture as the rule of faith, the priesthood of all believers, and the fallibility of man and all human institutions. 
After introducing these central points in Protestant thought, I went on to discuss three matters about which Protestants, although not always fully in agreement with one another, do agree that Roman Catholic teaching is wrong, namely the full effect of original sin, the Church, and the sacraments. I ended the paper by listing some ways in which Protestants and Catholics would have to be open to one another and open to change if we were ever to come to unity and belief. The paper, though a pretty accurate representation of Protestant thought, reveals that I did not hold a fully accurate understanding of Roman Catholic teaching. The official teaching of the Catholic Church, especially as clarified in Vatican II and following, is not so very different than Protestant teaching concerning several of the points I tried to make. The Catholic leaders in the Fellowship of Communities appear to take heart from my paper since the core disagreements are in a relatively few areas of the faith. The more I thought about it, however, the more their response mystified me. What had begun to become clearer and clearer to me because of this project was that there was very little chance of coming to substantive doctrinal unity among ourselves because of one foundational issue. What is the final ground of authority? As long as Protestants hold the Scripture alone as the final source of authority, and as long as Roman Catholics hold that the Roman Catholic Church's interpretation of Scripture is the final authority, I could see no hope that we could actually agree on certain teachings of faith. Faithful Roman Catholics are required to accept certain teachings about which their Church has spoken definitively, including the doctrine of papal infallibility which defines the power of the Pope to speak ex cathedra, that is, from the chair. Even though the use of ex cathedra is rare and bounded by strict limits, it has been used to reinforce Catholic traditions, such as the bodily assumption of Mary into heaven, 1950. Traditions that divide Protestants and Roman Catholics. Therefore, Unless their church were to change its position on these matters, completely honest Roman Catholics, it seemed to me, would have to choose agreement with their church or ultimately would have to separate themselves from it. I knew we could love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but how far could we go in building our lives toward the unity Jesus prayed for us to have if we were not looking for, to the same source as our ground of authority? In the fresh enthusiasm of the move of the Holy Spirit that we had shared in the earlier years, it had been my impression, naive as it may have been, that we were all open to moving towards something new, that what God was after was a church like it was when it had begun in Acts, a church that was neither Catholic nor Protestant. I fully believed that God was restoring the church of the New Testament. I did not seriously consider the arguments of the Roman Catholic Church and of the Eastern Orthodox Churches that they are the legitimate continuation of that church in the New Testament. The matter of the church's unity is vital. Jesus' prayer in John 17 that the church be one just as the Father and Son are one must be taken seriously. Jesus would not have prayed for something that cannot happen. In fact, because Jesus prayed for the unity of God's people, we know that there will be unity. This I believe then and I believe now. My naivety was not that God cannot and will not bring about unity. Rather, it was naivety that did not sufficiently recognize our human inability 
to bring about that unity, and also naivety about where we were on God's timetable. In the years since, I've come to see that part of the struggle I was having was rooted in my own immaturity as well as in my lack of faith in God's ability. I'm still working to live out unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ, with those in our local community of faith, our church, and those from other households of faith or churches in Winchester, and with all those with whom I have relationships wherever they may be, including my brothers and sisters in Christ who are still Roman Catholic. And yet I believe God was at work in my weakness to make the nest uncomfortable because his plan was that I serve him in a different context. I came home from the meetings in Arizona physically drained. I had felt extra weary for a few weeks, but I assumed it was because of the intense energy that had been invested in writing that paper for such, in such a short amount of time. I had noticed an aching sensation on the lower right side of my abdomen from time, from time to time, but I did not take it seriously. After the conference, Patricia and I stayed in Arizona for a few extra days so we could drive down to the border town of Nogales, Mexico. We also spent a day in Tucson where we had a brief visit with our longtime friend Phil Conrad and we also drove out to tour the former movie site Old Tucson. However, Patricia was frustrated by the fact that I felt so weary that I wasted most of one morning lying in the motel room watching a movie on TV. Rather a dumb movie, in fact, titled Take This Job and Shove It. Shortly after returning home, I went to preach on a Sunday evening at a Black Baptist church in St. Paul for the anniversary of the pastor's ministry in that church. I remember the congregation's gift to him was a set of keys to a new Mercedes-Benz. Their gift to me was an enthusiastic response to my message, a response that pulled the sermon out of me in such a way that by the time I was done, I was totally spent spirit, soul, and body, and I had sweated clear through my clothing, even my suit jacket. I was so worn out that I had to drag myself out to the car in order to drive back to our home in South Minneapolis. A few days later, I went to see our doctor who diagnosed me first with mononucleosis, and then a day or two later, after blood test results came back, called to say that I also had hepatitis A and B. How I contacted hepatitis, I don't know, but it may well have been by contact with some food handler in a Minneapolis restaurant. As politically correct as it may be to say it these days, several times while we were living there, hepatitis outbreaks had been traced back to homosexual food handlers who were not following sanitary procedures. The bottom line is that I was really, really sick. There was no cure except to rest while my body fought the sickness and began to recover. The doctor's orders were that I not work at all for three months, and then he said I could try to work a few days a week. It was actually two years or more before I had the strength to do a full work week. During that time, I had time to read and to think. There was much to think about. The matter of authority was often in my mind, but there was more. In the early months of 1983, at the Fellowship of Communities meeting in Arizona, I believe it was that the leaders from the People of Praise informed us that they had come to a decision to build one international community consisting of branches in many localities. 
and they invited the other communities in the fellowship to become branches. They said they would continue friendly relationships and cooperation with all of us as they were able, but that their priority would be to build the people of praise. When this vision and invitation were shared with all the coordinators of servants back home, a few were inclined to join with them, but most of us were not all that interested. Jack Brombach, our overall coordinator, seemed at best ambivalent to the idea of our becoming a branch of the people of praise, but he also did not seem to like the idea of not being in a close relationship to those brothers who had become his close friends and advisors. However, after Jack returned from that year's National Catholic Charismatic Conference held at Notre Dame in late May or early June, he told us that he had had an encounter with the Lord in which he felt a definite call to lead the community into the people praise. My personal response to Jack's testimony was to think, this is probably right for the community, but I'm not at all sure I could serve as a coordinator in the people praise. From my perspective, the leaders of the people of praise in South Bend had a view of Catholicism that was strongly influenced by the teaching of Thomas Aquinas, whose work Francis Schaeffer had said opened the door to an overemphasis on human reason that had come to characterize Renaissance thought and had led to the Enlightenment. Francis Schaeffer convinced me about that. And as I understood their vision, the authoritative teaching for the whole people of praise would be coming from the leaders in South Bend who had this influence of Aquinas working in them. I discussed my reservation questions with my wife. If our community joins the people of praise and I remain a coordinator, wouldn't I implicitly be giving my assent to all the teaching? I wondered. If we disagreed with any of that teaching, wouldn't I have to come home and try to undo the teaching with my children? It's highly possible that in the context of these questions, the enemy who always seeks to divide God's people began to get involved. I started to think about questions such as these. What would we do if our children grew up and wanted to marry Catholics? How could we explain to them that even though these are our brothers and sisters in Christ, no, we can't approve of such a marriage? Looking back, I think there were real questions that needed to be asked, yet some of my questions were mixed with concern about hypothetical possibilities. Whatever the truth of that may be, I was wrestling with what all this meant for me and my family. Just about that time, I was released to begin working again. It was time for a decision regarding our community's connection. A couple weeks after Jack's experience at the Notre Dame Conference, all our coordinators gathered for a retreat at his lake cabin near Niswa, Minnesota. I don't remember if any other guests were present, but Paul DeSells came from South Bend to help answer questions any of us might have as we prayerfully deliberated the course our community should take. Paul's presence was especially significant for me because one afternoon the two of us walked to Niswa and back in order to have a time to talk. I opened up to Paul as fully as I knew how about all my thoughts and concerns. I remember at one point we were discussing the division in the form of association of communities and the impact of that on the ecumenical council which he had been a part along with other Catholic leaders, some Lutheran leaders, and the new wine teachers. Paul told me that even though there had not been public division, there were great differences and tensions among the five teachers from 
new wine, just as great as those which had resulted in division among the Catholic leaders. It was a helpful talk. When we returned to the cabin, I went directly to my sleeping quarters to rest. I did more thinking than actual resting. At that retreat, the coordinators made the decision that the servants of the Lord would become the servant branch of the People of Praise community. I assented to the decision. I said before them all that I thought it was the right decision for Jack and that it was the, right, the best thing for the community, but I also stated that I was not at all sure I could continue as a coordinator. A few days afterward, I wrote a long letter to Paul DeSales in which after thanking him for the talks we'd had on the walk, I reported on my thoughts in the days following the, the retreat, and I told him that I had concluded it would probably be best for me to resign from serving as a coordinator. I did not get to talk all this over with Bill Rademacher because he and his family had gone away on a vacation immediately after the retreat. However, I made a copy of the letter and left it on his desk for him to read when he returned. But by that time, my family and I were away on our own vacation. Our family had a spectacular trip to Wyoming for that vacation. We had been blessed with the birth of our second daughter for Andrea back in March of 1982. So there were now five of us. Having loaded our suitcases and camping gear into the beige plastic carrier fastened to the top of our 1981 silver Volkswagen Dasher station wagon, we headed out on our great adventure. We drove across South Dakota, spent the night in Belfus, South Dakota near the Wyoming border. Then the next morning we went on to Buffalo, Wyoming where we had lunch with our friends Bill and Nan Bagby. After lunch, we drove over the Bighorn Mountains by way of Ten Sleep Pass and Canyon and stopped for the night in the little western town of Ten Sleep. The next day, we traveled through the wheat country of the Bighorn Basin, through Warland and on northwest to Cody, where we had visited the Buffalo Bill Museum. After a night in Cody, we drove up US-14 along the Shoshone River, past the Buffalo Bill Dam and Reservoir, into the Absaroka Mountains and on into Yellowstone National Park. There we met Bob and Kathy Cattelier and a number of other friends who were members of the Shalom Covenant community in Casper, friends whom I had had the privilege to teach at several conferences and retreats. We all planned to stay until Monday, July 4th, but soon after we arrived on Friday evening, July 1st, rain began to fall. It rained most of the time for the next 24 hours. Since it was our first trip into Yellowstone, our family spent most of that cold, rainy Saturday driving around the park to view the vistas and the wildlife. Thankfully, the weather cleared, enough for us to enjoy a picnic supper with the Shalom folks on Saturday. However, waking up on Sunday morning to find snow and ice on the tent was enough of camping in Yellowstone for us. We packed up the family, drove over to see Old Faithful, then out the south exit and down to Jackson Hole, where it was about 100 degrees. Since a blistering, crowded tourist town on Sunday afternoon held no attraction, we drove on through the wide open ranch lands in western Wyoming. Out in the middle of what seemed like nowhere, we came across Sitzman's Motel on the edge of the village of Farson, a motel in a setting very reminiscent of the one 
where Mac, Robert Duvall's character in the 1983 movie Tender Mercies, awoke from his drunken stupor. On Monday, we met the Shalom group in, at South Pass City, where two or three hundred people, an amazing number in such a sparsely populated area, had gathered for an old-fashioned Fourth of July buffalo barbecue and picnic. When the afternoon got too warm to be enjoyable, several of us took the short, for Wyoming, drive of 114 miles to Thermopolis in the Wind River Mountains for a refreshing swim in the hot mineral springs. After spending the night in Thermopolis, our family headed back toward Minneapolis by way of the Black Hills, where we drove past Mount Rushmore, and then took time to stop a while in Deadwood, where Wild Bill Hickok had once been sheriff. A few days later, back in Minneapolis, I was able to get together with Bill Rademacher, who said, I read your letter. Now I understand the issue. You need to be in one of the communities related to the New Wine Teachers, and I will see that you are able to make that change. It seemed so simple and right when Bill said it, but I had not considered that as an option, not after my experience of choosing streams in 1977 while I was house servant. After all, my wife and I had made covenant with the community, so in all this, I did not entertain any thought of leaving the community. The community was our home. Besides, we loved living in Minneapolis, and we still had a number of friends in the Waite Park Wesleyan Church. Also, I had been asked to participate in a council of elders who represented a few dozen churches in the Twin Cities, and I was eager to keep up those relationships and to see what God would do through His church in that area. But now, Patricia and I began to wonder what other options there were. Where did the Lord want us? Soon after that talk with Bill, it was time for a camp out with the Free Church Fellowship that we had planned previously. We had engaged a campground in western Wisconsin for a weekend retreat, and we had asked John Meadows to come from Kentucky to be our speaker. There is nothing to say other than it was a great weekend, any way you look at it. We had great times of prayer. John shared some excellent messages, and we had some wonderful times of recreation and fellowship and entertainment. The camaraderie and joy in being together seemed palpable. Although I had not yet talked with anyone in the community besides Patricia about that letter to Paul DeSells and about my recent talk with Bill Rademacher, I did talk about it with John, whom I trusted and whose counsel I valued. Thus, on Sunday afternoon, as John, his wife, Vicki, and Patricia and I were all driving away from the camp together, headed out for a few days at a friend's cabin on the Osawamini, <laughs> you can try to pronounce this word, Osawinamaki Lake, Lake of nor north of Brainerd, Minnesota, John looked at me and said, if you were to leave the servants, most of the people in the Free Church Fellowship would leave with you. No. You don't understand, I replied. The people in the new wine community see their covenant to be first with their shepherd or personal pastor. In our community, we do not do it that way. Our covenant is with the whole community. All I know, John answered, is that the people in this group have the same kind of relational ties and spirit that we have as a flock, which was the term they used for those walking together with the same pastoral leader. You have the same relational ties and spirit that we have as a flock in our communities. If you were to leave, most of them will want to be with you. 
Well, this was interesting to hear from John since he had moved from Lancaster, Ohio to Lexington, Kentucky in order to be near his shepherd or pastor. I knew that several groups from Ohio and Florida had been moving to Lexington with their leaders. But I did not take the remark seriously. That really was not the way covenant and servants was meant to work. Besides, I thought, we had just gone through that split with those who follow Larry Alberts. I was not going to be part of another division. No way. After the Meadows returned to Kentucky, the members of our household joined us at the cabin for a short household vacation. Once back at home, Patricia and I began to discuss our future at length. With Bill leading the way, I also began talks with him and with Jack and Louie, the other head coordinators, concerning our options. One possibility I brought up was that any members of the Free Church Fellowship who desired to do so might form a local church that would have a relationship with the community as some sort of non-geographical district. The idea sounded good at first, but after some discussion, it didn't seem very feasible. Another possibility discussed was uh, that I be released to be a part of Way of the Cross Church, which was located in Blaine, a northern suburb of Minneapolis. Don Fotenauer, the senior pastor, who had been a Missouri-centered Lutheran pastor, but had been disfellowshipped because of speaking in tongues, had founded that non-denominational Way of the Cross Church several years earlier. Eventually, Don had begun to look to Ern Baxter, one of the new wine teachers, for his personal pastoral oversight. A few years before, after we had started the Free Church Fellowship, Don and the Way of, Cross, Way of the Cross elders, after interviewing me, had authorized me as a minister to do weddings and fulfill other ministerial responsibilities that the servants could not authorize me to do because the community was not a church. Transferring to the way of the cross seemed to make good sense. The third possibility, the one I considered least, was that our family moved to Lexington to be part of Covenant Church of Lexington where John Meadows was serving as an elder. I still remember the August day when, while discussing these matters with Patricia in our kitchen, she said, we're going to move to Lexington. I brushed that off, saying that something about how truly unlikely that was. After all, we belonged in Minneapolis. By September, we had talked about the change with the full body of coordinators, but no one else in the community. During this time, the maintenance man for the servant's office building, Dwayne Roller, whom we had met in Grand Forks and who was one of the first members of the Free Church Fellowship, began to stop in my office frequently to talk about his own thoughts. The Servants of the Lord had begun mission outreach in Central and South America. Duane was excited for the community, but had been struck by the fact that all the mission activity was among Catholics. Duane processed things by talking. So again and again he would rejoice that the community was active in missions, but go on to say he longed to be part of a Protestant mission activity. Several times he said, I wonder if I belong in one of the new wine communities. Duane, who died from cancer while we were caring for him in our home in 2014, was a spiritually sensitive man, a very simple man in some ways, but a man who had an uncanny, uncanny ability to hear from God, usually after a good deal of internal wrestling. 
Duane's thoughts, especially at this time, certainly got my attention. But in my own thinking, I tried to keep his wrestlings disconnected from my own situation. Bill, Jack, Louie, and I were close to full agreement that the best option was for the servants to release our family to the care of Don Fotenauer in the Way of the Cross. Therefore, Don and Tom Stewart, one of the elders, came to meet with us in the servants' office building. It was a good meeting, and by the time it was over, we had agreed on a strategy for making the transfer, including me going along with the Way of the Cross brothers to an early October meeting in Columbus, Ohio, where Charles Simpson would be speaking. We'd ended our visit when, as we were leaving the room, in what seemed like a spontaneous afterthought, Jack Brombeck said, I don't think you should make this decision final without visiting your friend John in Lexington. Therefore, since Jack represented authority, rather than ride in the RV to the Columbus Conference with the Way of Cross Brothers, Patricia and I drove to Ohio in our VW Dasher so that we could go on to Lexington, Kentucky for a visit the following week. According to our agreement, though, I met the Way of the Cross men in Columbus and spent the nights in their RV parked outside the hotel where the conferences were held, while Patricia stayed with her sister Kay in the nearby town of Plain City. During that memorable conference, I had a meal with Rob Reynolds, John's personal pastor, and I had a late-night snack with Paul Petrie, the senior pastor at the church in Lexington. I remember sharing my story with Paul. As I finished, he looked me in the eye and said, It was written in your spiritual DNA that you belong with us. I took that to mean that he was saying that I belonged in the new wine stream of the communities. Maybe he did. But maybe he had foresight that I didn't have. Some sense about what was soon to happen. When the conference ended at noon on Sunday, Patricia came to pick me up. We drove south on US-23 to Portsmouth, Ohio, where we spent the night with her mother before going on to Lexington late Monday afternoon, where we were going to stay with the Meadows until Friday. We had good fellowship with John and Vicki and their family Monday evening. As it turned out, Covenant Church elders had their all-day elders meeting on Tuesday, so I had time on my hands. While Patricia visited with Vicki, I decided to drive around just to get the feel of the city. While I was driving, out of the blue, for no apparent reason, I simply came to know that we were supposed to move to Lexington to be part of Covenant Church. This conviction was so strong that as I drove, I was wondering nervously how I was to tell Patricia that there was no decision to be made. I certainly had to do face-to-face and not in the presence of John and Vicki. Therefore, in the mid-afternoon, I went back to Meadows' house and asked Patricia to come with me for a ride. I took her to Gaddy's Pizza, located near Lexington Mall on Richmond Road, and I told her as we were eating pizza and drinking Pepsi, one of her favorite meals. Her response was classic. I knew that, she stated firmly. I told you already that we would move to Lexington. I don't know why we're here. What if we don't like it? We're going to move anyway. I had forgotten the August conversation in our kitchen. Well, at least I don't have to convince her, I thought to myself, relieved. Thankfully, we were in unity about where God wanted us to be placed in Christ's body. 
The remaining days of our time in Lexington were spent learning more about Covenant Church and about Lexington, our future home. After we returned to Minneapolis, I reported our decision to the coordinators. By that time, a Sunday early in November had been set when the servants of the Lord would officially be received as the servant branch of the people of praise. It seemed best for us to be officially released from our covenant with the community before that change was final. Generously, the coordinators decided to continue my salary for six months as severance pay to see us through the transition. We had still not talked about the decision to move with community members other than with the coordinators and the members of our household. In late October, we called the people in the Free Church Fellowship together for a special meeting in order to let them know first that we were to be released to move to Lexington. It was no big surprise when Dwayne Roller came to me within a few days to say that he thought he should also move to Lexington and become part of Covenant Church. But it was a huge surprise when over the next couple of weeks several others began to come to me saying the same thing. My immediate response was, don't talk to me about it, talk with the other coordinators. If they release you from your commitment, then come talk with me. When the whole community came together at that November meeting, during which the servants of the Lord would officially become a branch of the people of praise, I was invited to make a statement about our going. The coordinators requested that I announce our intention to move as a personal decision for personal reasons without talking about my personal concerns regarding people praise. This approach seemed right to me since I had no desire to stir up undue turmoil for the community. In the long run, however, one inevitable consequence was that many members of the community, even close friends, came away with the view that we must have had some problem with the servants of the Lord and especially some problem with the leaders, and that was the real reason we chose to leave. Some people felt judged and even rejected by us. Thankfully, as the years have passed, we've been able to get clarity in a number of those relationships, and today we still have deep friendships with, with our friends in the servants of the Lord, or the servant branch of the people of praise. After I had announced our decision, and Jack had publicly released us with the blessing of servants of the Lord coordinators, the servants of the Lord ceased to exist as an autonomous community with its own covenant, and the members officially became members of the people praise by committing themselves to its covenant. Shortly after this, we put our house on the market. Our family did not participate in people praise meetings. Although we did continue participating in the Free Church Fellowship, until just before Christmas when we left for Ohio to spend the holidays with our families there. I inadvertently turned the recorder off before adding a closing comment, so I'm hoping that I can splice this together and release it with that episode. I wanted to reiterate that the real reason for our upcoming move was not actually the conflicting thoughts that I had about Roman Catholicism. Rather, it was God's plan that was unfolding for us to follow. Of course, there are things about the Roman Catholic Church that concern me and with, and with which I 
cannot be in union. If there weren't, I'd be a Catholic. Yet I had precious Roman Catholic friends, true brothers in Christ back then, and I have them still. These days, there are great struggles going on in the Roman Catholic Church because so many, even among the leaders, have been secularized and have been turning from biblical instruction and morality, just as many have been doing in the historically Protestant churches for a long time, and now, these days, even in many evangelical churches. There are those like Ralph Martin, whom I've mentioned before in my book, who've been raising prophetic voices, sounding the alarm and calling for Roman Catholics to be true to God's word in the scriptures. Rather than criticize one another over lesser matters, let's all pray for one another. Pray that we all will be found faithful in the time of testing that God is allowing the church to face in these days. Personally, I'm convinced that we are in a season when the distinction between the wheat and the tares is becoming clearer in our culture and in all the churches. Whether or not the final harvest is near, it is time for God's people to shine brightly with his light. See Jesus' interpretation of that parable of the wheat and tares in Matthew 13, 36-43. Brothers and sisters, it is for such a time as this that we, like Queen Esther of old, must stand courageously. May we shine like stars, lights in the cosmos, as we hold forth and hold fast to the word of life. Read about that in Philippians 2, 14-16, which I recommend reading in more than one translation because it's expressed differently in some places. May God bless you and keep you, and may we all continue the journey wherever the Lord may take us.